0: Section 17 of Volume 1 of Symbolism, by Johann Adam Möller, translated by James Burton Robertson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Subheading 8. Doctrine of the Calvinists on Original Sin. In their account of original sin and its consequences, the Calvinists do not proceed to near such lengths as the Lutherans. It may certainly be asserted in more than one respect, that the reformed system of doctrine, as invented or arranged by Calvin, derived on many points undeniable advantages from the mistakes and errors of the earlier reformers. Hence, the more learned and scientific Calvin shows himself here and there more equitable towards the Catholics, presents their doctrine at times in a form not quite so disfigured as his predecessors, and on the whole proceeds with far more calmness and circumspection than luther thus it happened that in the same way as wingley's cold and inane theory on the sacrament of the altar was by calvin brought much nearer to the true christian standard so in the doctrine which now engages our attention only a slight removal from the truth is perceptible but this retrograde movement when it occurred or did not often take place was almost always brought about at the cost of clearness and distinctness of ideas and if the mitigation of a too great severity afford pleasure the uncertainty and fluctuation of notions that is substituted is but the more perplexing even calvin expresses himself in various ways respecting original sin and its consequences in some places he says the image of god has been utterly effaced from the soul of man in other passages he expresses the same thing to the following effect, Quote, Man, says he, has been so banished from the kingdom of God that all in him which bears reference to the blessed life of the soul is extinct, unquote. and he asserts that man has received again organs for the divine kingdom only by the new creation in Christ Jesus. These assertions are, however, opposed by other passages in which it is asserted that the divine image stamped on the human soul has never been totally destroyed and obliterated, but only fearfully disfigured, mutilated, and deformed. The same instinctiveness, the same vacillation, is apparent when Calvin investigates in detail the faculties yet belonging to the sinful and unregenerated man, or when he subjects to a more comprehensive examination the principle of freedom, which, according to the Catholic dogma, survives even in fallen man. He observes that reason, ratio intellectus, and the will voluntas, could not be eradicated from man, for these faculties form the characteristic distinction between man and the brute. In the circle of social institutions, of the liberal and mechanical arts, of logic, dialectics, and mathematics, he accords to reason, he had better said understanding, the most glorious scope even among the heathens, and takes occasion to indulge in a bitter sally against the contempt of philosophy so prevalent among the Protestants of his day, but when he comes to describe the religious and moral faculties of man, then the most singular indistinctness appears. As regards the knowledge of God, he by no means calls in question that some truths were found scattered even among the nations unfavored with the special divine revelation, and he seems on that account not to approve the opinion of a total destruction of the spiritual powers. But then he destroys the hope which this concession offers by adding that the Almighty had granted such glimpses in the depth of night in order to be able to condemn out of their own mouth the men whom they had been imparted to, or rather forced on, for then they could not excuse themselves as having been unacquainted with the ways of the Lord. Accordingly, he appears again indisposed to regard those traces of the true knowledge of God as the result and property of higher human faculties cooperating with God. Nay, he seems to look upon them as a consequence of some strange and marvelous influence of the deity upon certain men for certain purposes, and this is the more remarkable as he elsewhere deduces the anxiety for a good reputation from the feeling of shame, and this again from the innate sense of justice and virtue wherein the germ of religion is already involved. Thus we see throughout a sound, excellent mind struggling for the victory with disordered feelings, but after a short vigorous onset for the mastery compelled to succumb. Nearly in the same way he treats the moral phenomena of the ancient world. The Catholics were wont at times to refer to men like Camillus and from their lives to demonstrate the moral freedom enjoyed even by the heathens and the remnants of good to be found among them. They defended, moreover, the proposition that God's special grace, communicated for the sake of Christ's merits, worked retrospectively and confirming the better surviving sentiments in the human breast is undeniably to be traced. In many phenomena. What course does Calvin now pursue to explain such phenomena? He observes that it is very easy to let ourselves be deceived by the same as to the true nature of corruption, and he does not precisely deny the finer traces of a moral spirit. But he says, we should remember that divine grace here and there works as an impediment, not by its aid to strengthen and purify the interior of man, but mechanically to prevent the otherwise infallible outbreaks of evil. The conduct of the good Camillus, he accordingly explains by the assumption that it might have been pure exterior and hypocritical, or the result of the above-mentioned grace mechanically repressing evil in his breast, but in no wise rendering him better than his fellows. By such more than mechanical attempts at explanation, Calvin shows beyond doubt that when he speaks of reason and the will as undestroyed and indestructible faculties of the soul, distinguishing man from the brute, he is far from thinking that man has preserved out of his unhappy catastrophe any moral and religious powers whatever. Extravagant, however, as the judgment might be which Calvin formed of unregenerated man, he yet did not forget himself so far as the Lutherans. When he teaches that the will and the reason exist even after the fall, he means thereby the faculty of faith, and of the higher will. Those passages wherein he seems to deny this faculty to fallen man, and of these there are very many, must be corrected by others, wherein he expressly asserts that when he speaks of a destruction of the will, he understands only the really good will, and not the mere faculty of will, so that the opinion of Victorinus Strigel which was rejected by the Lutherans, appears to be precisely that of Calvin. Of concupiscence, moreover, as is evident from the preceding account, Calvin entertains nearly the same notion as the Lutheran formularies profess, only that he is unwilling to use this technical word, and hence we can understand why in the confession of the Calvinistic churches it is but very rarely employed. As regards the Calvinistic formularies, they may be divided into several classes, since those who were framed under the immediate or remoter influence of Zwingli are clearly distinguishable from those wherein the spirit of Calvin breathes. In the Tetrapolitana, the doctrine of original sin is not specifically treated, but is only incidentally touched on under the article of justification, a fact for the explanation whereof we shall have occasion to notice later the doctrine of Zwingli on original sin. The most ancient Helvetic confessions, two and three, express themselves on this head with much caution and circumspection, and could we be only assured of their spirit, that is to say, were we but certain, that this, their boasted peculiarity did not proceed from the same motive which induced the Tetrapolitana to take no special notice of original sin they might call forth from the Catholic expressions of perfect satisfaction. To the Helvetic Confessions we may add that of the Anglican Church, which on every point endeavors to avoid a tone of exaggeration. The first Helvetic Confession, which, however, is not the most ancient, the Gallic, Belgian, and Scottish Confessions, on the other hand, unequivocally express Calvin's doctrine that man is thoroughly and entirely corrupted. However, in these, as in the writings of Calvin, we meet with many indeterminate and wavering expressions. It is worthy of observation, moreover, that the first Helvetic formulary pronounces the Lutheran opinion that fallen man no longer possesses the faculty of will and knowledge for the kingdom of God, to be Manichean. The following fact is worthy of our attention. Even the confessions of the Reformed consider actual sins as only the manifestations of original sin, as the gradual revelation of the same and special determinate phenomena. According to them, also, Adam's sin is the unique, the only source whence all sin flows without ever exhausting it, the infinite source ever active and stirring to find an outlet, and when that outlet is found, impatient to find a new one. With reason, Catholics were able to reply that, according to this view, all sins would be necessarily equal, since, according to the maxims of a false realism, the person is considered as absorbed in nature, the individual and universal being, and the fact that not all the unconverted are in a like degree rogues and villains, not all fratricides and parricides, robbers and poisoners, the Calvinists can by no means explain by the different use of freedom, since, according to their doctrine, no one possesses it. Thus, observe the Catholics, the primitive evil, according to the maxims of Calvin, progresses with a blind necessity, and finds in every man a ready, though servile instrument for the perpetration of its most horrible deeds. It can, therefore, be regarded only as an accident when one appears as a frightful criminal, the other as a moral man. The latter, at bottom, is as bad as the former. The sinfulness alike in each, and repressible by none, manifests itself sometimes here, sometimes there, in more violent explosions. The first Helvetic confession guards itself against these and such-like consequences, and condemns the Jovians, Pelagians, and the Stoics, who taught the equality of all sins but it can establish no other difference of sins than that of external manifestation, according to which, truly, not one sin, perhaps, is like to the other. However, we honor in this cautiousness a sound feeling, a welcome perception of that deep, indescribable abyss of error, out of which the Reformation sprang. The doctrine of the Reformed Confessions Respecting Wicked Lust, Concupiscentia, we shall not set forth at length, since it does not materially differ from the view of the Orthodox Lutherans. In respect to the bodily death, this is regarded, as in the Catholic Church, to be a consequence of original sin. Subheading 9. Zwingli's View of Original Sin To explain some phenomena in the formularies of the Reformed Churches, we annex the doctrine of Zwingli on original sin. This reformer ventures on the attempt not merely to determine according to scriptural evidence the nature of man's hereditary evil, but to give a psychological explanation of the sin of Adam, an attempt for which he is utterly incompetent, and which is very inferior to preceding efforts for the illustration of this very obscure mystery. Nay, in reality explains absolutely nothing, and presupposes original sin. In the first place, Zwingli troubles the serious reader with a very untimely jest, when he says that it was a bad prognostic for the future married man that Eve should have been formed out of a rib of the sleeping Adam, for, from observing that her husband, during this operation, was not awakened, nor brought to consciousness, the thought naturally arose in her mind that her mate might be easily deceived and circumvented. Satan now observed Eve's growing spirit of enterprise, and withal, her total inexperience in all intrigues. Aiding, therefore, her internal desire to play a trick, and her utter impotence to accomplish her purpose, he pointed out to her the way for deceiving her husband, and the result was the first sin. This man, sporting over sin, seriously observes that from this whole process of satanic seduction, and especially from the enticements offered, it is easy to conclude that the self-love of Adam was the cause of his sin, and that consequently from self-love flows all human misery. But then, as according to all the laws of the outward world, the light like can only proceed from its like so since Adam's fall, all men were born with this self-love, the germ of all moral evil. Zwingli then proceeds to describe original sin, which in itself is not sin but only a natural disposition to sin a leaning propensity to sin, and endeavors to illustrate his meaning by the following comparison. A young wolf has in all respects the natural qualities of a wolf, that is to say, it is one, that, in virtue of its innate ferocity, would attack and devour the sheep, though yet it is not actually done so, and huntsmen, on discovering it, will treat it in the same manner as the old one, for they feel convinced that, on its growing up, it will, like the others of its species, fall upon the flocks and commit ravages. The natural disposition is the hereditary sin, or the hereditary fault. The special robbery is the actual sin growing out of the former. The latter is sin in the strict sense of the word, while the former ought not to be considered either as a sin or as a debt. This account, while it explains nothing, is withal of a genuine Protestant stamp that it explains nothing is evident from its representing self-love as the cause of adam's sin which accordingly before his fall lay concealed in him and by the mediation of satan was only introduced into the outward world this self-love is represented as the effect of adam's sin extending to all his posterity as the natural disposition of all his sons so that original sin appears as a corruption already innate in adam and it must be considered not so much as inherited of adam but as implanted by god himself but this explanation is also a genuine protestant one since it frankly and undisguisedly holds up god as the author of sin and looks upon all particular actual sins as the necessary results the outward manifestations of a natural disposition a disposition which is well illustrated by that of the young wolf that devoid of freedom is totally unable to resist the impulse of instinct. Hence also Zwingli with reason regards original sin not as sin, but only as an evil clinging to human nature. He is, however, chargeable with an inconsistency in considering actual sins to be sins, for they are only the necessary growth of a natural disposition. It would have been also more in conformity with his above-mentioned principles as to the cause of evil, who have considered no moral transgression as contracting a debt end of section 17